0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Imagine you were given your newborn child's life story. It's Imagine that they handed you a sheet of paper with the outline of all the significant events that were going to happen in her life over the years to come. They gave you an eraser in five minutes and said, You can erase anything from this script that you want. As you look at the page, you see that when she gets to elementary school, she's going to have a learning disability that will show up and what's easy for everybody else is going to be hard for her. She gets to high school. She'll make a great group of friends, but one of them will die of cancer. She'll play soccer and get to go to her first choice college. She'll play soccer there for two years. By her junior year, though, she ends up in a car accident loses her left foot. Gets a dream job several years later and loves it, but then uh, in an economic downturn, she loses it, she's stuck. Great marriage has to go through the horrors and the pain of a separation. This is a scenario similar to one that uh, John Ortberg presents in an article, and then he raises the question that is formed by NYU psychologist Jonathan Haidt comes out of his research, says presented with something like this, the key question is, what would you do? With that eraser, would you remove anything? If you could, would you would you not be tempted to at least to remove those moments of pain and hurt from their lives? I know I would. But then hate asks, "Well, wait a minute. Would that be the right thing to do? Would that be the good thing to do? What if someday, after all was said and done, it turns out that there were those moments." that really formed that life. What if it turns out in retrospect that when you look back you see that there were the setbacks and the adversity that gave her the endurance that was such a mark of her personality and that gave her the strength of character that you love in her. What if it were the grief and the broken heart, those moments that enlarged the capacity of her own heart to have empathy To receive love and to share it. What if it were her experiences of failure? That were the very things that allowed her to make contact with the depths of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And allowed her to share that grace with other people. Would it be right to remove those things? And would it be right for God to remove those things from our lives? If he did, if he just erased those things, would he really be a good God? Jonathan Haidt offers us what he calls the adversity hypothesis. Which states that people need adversity, setbacks, and perhaps even trauma. To reach the highest levels of strength, fulfillment, and personal development. I've uh, looked at my life story recently and there are definitely some parts that I would like to erase. That I wish weren't there. For example, uh, you may have noticed over the last year, occasionally I made an offhanded, it's not very funny comment, uh, that disparages teenagers. And I should probably apologize for that. Uh, because the truth is, it's not that I have had a hard time with teenagers. It's that I have had a hard time being a good dad. See, I'm the guy that for years people used to beg to teach parenting classes and i've taught a ton of parenting classes multi-week parenting classes and people go oh that's brilliant stuff it's so good when when are you going to teach it again and uh so i'm thinking myself as a great dad until one day i land in family therapy what that's what the pediatrician says i she says i think you need to go to family therapy i said no i didn't bring you my problems i brought you a teenage problem she says well you have a family problem you're part of the family it's a system, and you need to take a good look at what you contribute for better or for worse to that family system. No teenager has a problem that isn't part of the problem of the people around him or her. And so, I've been in family therapy for the past year, and I want to tell you, I wish God would just erase that whole thing because I'm coming face to face in a very uncomfortable way with my own brokenness, with the ways in which I have hurt the people that I love the very most. I don't wish to go through that. Why do I tell you this? The reason I do is not because it's about me, but I know there are people in this room. In fact, I believe that every single one of us in this room is struggling with pain. That there's a woundedness. That there's a hurt. That there's some experience of suffering. I don't know, maybe it's something that you did, you wish you hadn't done. It's maybe something that someone did to you. Maybe it's something that just happened to someone you care about. I don't know what it is, but I I just believe there's something there. And the key question is, what do you do with that hurt? Where are you going to put it? What's going to happen to it? So I know that you and I live in a a world in which the solution, the best that we have to offer, apart from Jesus Christ, is just to, to run, to hide to medicate, to deny. But Jesus Christ, your Savior, invites you to so much more. And that's what I want to talk about here in the next few minutes. You see, this summer we've been looking at the story of the whole Bible, and we're almost to the end. If you look at the table of contents in your New Testament, you'll see we come to a collection of letters there. Uh, and, And these letters are the book of Hebrews, and then what are called the general epistles, sometimes the Catholic epistles, And the word Catholic, you know, means universal. And so these letters are collected together at the end of the New Testament because it's not so much that they're written to particular congregations, but just universally to Christians in in broad areas. We're talking about Hebrews and then James and the letters of Peter and the letters of John and, and finally the letter called Jude. And... Uh, In these letters, if you read them closely, you're going to begin to notice hints and signs and indications that the followers of Jesus Christ begin to find that what he said about there being trouble in the world is true. Life gets hard for them. Many of them find themselves in places of persecution where because of their simple claim that Jesus is God, died on the cross, offered his life for our sins, rose from the dead, and he's king over all. They suffer. They suffer. Now, this sermon is not about persecution. We should, we should have a sermon about persecution. I hope we will at some point because it's real today. Places like Saudi Arabia, China, Myanmar, uh, North Korea, Egypt. Believers are, are killed for their faith. But here's what I want to get at tonight. Since persecution was known by the early followers of Jesus Christ still within the New Testament period. And it's the most extreme form of suffering If we could learn from them how it was that they experienced joy in the midst of that suffering and adversity, maybe there's something for us, too, in the midst of our adversity, whatever it is that we're facing tonight. So that's what I'm looking for as we look at these uh, texts together. Let's open up the the Bible, then, to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, That's on page 978, if you've got the Pew Bible in front of you. Maybe you brought your own Bible, and that's great, too. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we're going to read in two sections tonight, if you will, uh, verses 1 and 2. And then I want to skip down with you and, and read chap- uh, uh, verse 7 through 11. Okay, so Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and then 7 through 11. And if you're able uh, to honor the author of this word, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, And has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Now skip down to verse 7. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share. Then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For as they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share His holiness. Now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. I'd like to look at this text with you under three headings. Our endurance, his strength, and a new story. First, our endurance. The first thing that we notice here is that we don't escape suffering. We embrace it. We don't escape suffering. We embrace it. The indication of this is in the imperative here in verse 7. Endure trials. Endure trials. Now, you may know that Greek word there. It's hupomeno. It may be familiar to you. It's a compound word in Greek And it's a a mashup of the word for remain, meno, remain or abide or stay or stand, and hupo, which is by or beside or with. Stand by your savior in the midst of suffering. Stay with, abide with, remain with, stick to. That's what it means to endure. So, implicit in this is don't run, don't hide. Don't pretend you're not hurting, you're hurting. But stand with, stand by your Savior. Apparently, this letter is written to a group of people who are suffering. If you want to look at that, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and following. You see they're losing property, they're being disrespected in the public space. Uh, Some of them are in prison. And they're tempted to give up, to throw in the towel. And that's so common as a pastor, as I visit with people Oftentimes, one of the biggest misconceptions I face is this idea that, well, if things aren't going well in my life, it must mean that God doesn't love me. That the pain somehow invalidates the claim that he loves me. But that's a myth. It's such a myth that Jesus wants to take us out of our pain, that we can use Jesus somehow to escape suffering. That's not his program. We want, when things are going well, God to kind of back off and leave us alone. We want when things are hurting, God to come in and rescue and lift us up. C. S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter as, so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence, who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. <laughs> Right? Heavenly grandfather, spoil the kids, not nurture them. That, uh, as Lewis says, God is calling us to something more powerful. That love is something more stern and more splendid. So endure. This is the kind of love that tells us the truth. And parents know a little bit about this. I remember when we moved to Boston, from Boston to Los Angeles, we bought a house on a hill. And the day that the moving van came in, the bikes got unpacked. And our youngest daughter, who was only so good with the bike at that point, uh, found the hill and found the lamppost and broke her right arm just before she entered into school and uh, she was hurting it was hanging there and uh, being the astute sensitive dad that I am I uh, walked over to her immediately and swept her into my arms and started moving towards the car and she said dad where are we going I said we're going to the hospital she said no I don't want to go to the hospital they're gonna give me a shot and it's gonna hurt you know how silly that is I'm thinking oh my gosh yeah it's gonna hurt much more than that they're gonna set a broken arm you have no idea how much pain you're in for And I said you know I say I had to say yes this is gonna hurt but we're going to make you better, sweetie. You've got to trust me. I'm your dad. I love you. It's going to be okay. And it has to hurt before it's healed. And that's the kind of love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's able to give us that gift in the midst of suffering in a way that he's not able to give it. When all is going well. Endure trials. Stand by me. Stand by my promises. Trust me. I know the pain might feel unbearable, but I will bear you up. I'm going to take you to the point of breaking, and you're not going to break. But why? Why are we called to endurance? Why would God allow us to suffer in this way? Is suffering not always a a surprise? An unholy, unwelcome guest that shows up on your doorstep all of a sudden, and there you are in pain. Why, God, did you allow this to happen? Well, in my experience, we don't get very far with that question. We very often don't know why these things happen. I'm quite sure that God is not the one who brings them into our life. But I I do see in this text a little bit of an explanation of how God uses these experiences for our good. Uh, Do you notice that it it continues? So I'm going to talk here now secondly about his strength. For the sake of discipline, verse 7. Endure for the sake of discipline. And see, the second thing we notice here is that we can embrace pain because God can use it to strengthen us. This is his strength at work in our lives. And immediately to me, it starts to sound like punishment when you see the word discipline and endure trials for the sake of discipline. And I go, oh, no, I don't even want to think of God disciplining because that sounds punitive. But the Greek word for discipline is an entirely positive word. And punishment can be a part of that. But that's not the, 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 the thrust of the word the thrust of the word is is to raise up a child in the ways that she will need to live life successfully the greek word is paideia from which we get our english word pedagogy which is an approach to teaching this Greek word paideia only appears in two other places in the New Testament outside of Hebrews chapter 12. One place is Ephesians 6 where we read about the paideia of the Lord. Parents, raise your children in the instruction of the Lord. Not in punishment, but the instruction. Cultivate life skill within them as they get to know Jesus Christ. And the other place is in 2 Timothy 3.16. That verse about God inspiring all scripture and the Bible being useful for training in righteousness. That's paideia in righteousness. The cultivation So what the writer is saying here is just like parents can expand the capacity of their children, just like the Bible can give you strength for life, so even our pain, so even God at work in our pain, as we stand by Jesus Christ, somehow in the mystery of his redemptive grace, there, there we increase in capacity. We're developing into the people that he has made us to be. I want to introduce you to a man I don't know personally, but his name is Harold Uh He's in the news, the hometown news where I grew up, which is Menlo Park, California. Harold Shaplehuman is the fire chief of Menlo Park Fire Department, uh, and apparently he's quite a guy. He deployed uh, during 9-11. He was sent to the Oklahoma City uh, after the bombings there. He was there Katrina. Uh, Unfortunately, tragically, in May, he, ironically, fell off a ladder in his backyard. fireman. And it was bad. He broke his back. And now, technically, he's a quadriplegic. But he can move his arms, and he has, he says, I'm getting pretty good with my right hand. But see, he's getting all this coverage, and everyone's talking about him in Menlo Park. Not because of the tragedy. That happened in May. This is all current. And what's happening now is people are observing his attitude, which is absolutely, stunningly unbelievable. He's so positive. He's got such sheer. His wife is noticing, and they go, man, this must be very hard having a husband who's going through this. And his quote is, no, she's my partner, not my caregiver. See how he's not giving up. He's uh, dealing all the other, in the the, uh, spinal trauma center, the hospital, he's dealing people into poker games to lift their spirits and to help with their fine motor skills. And uh, he wants to go back and be the fire chief at Menlo Park again. He's got plans for negotiating a crisis with the union there. He wants to increase the uh, physical capacity and to serve the community. He says this, just because I'm in a wheelchair doesn't mean I can't run an organization. I don't think I'm done with what I can provide the community. This is my favorite quote. This will be the title of one of my sermons someday. He says, I'm okay. I'm just broken. Do you not love that? I'm okay. I'm just broken. And there's something about this guy. He says, I've cried more in this place, the spinal uh, trauma center. Not always in a negative way. Notice this. You learn how strong you can be. Talk about his strength. Jonathan Hyde, the psychologist at NYU, he says, there are three benefits in his mind. This is just a secular book. but He says, when you go through crisis, there are three things that you learn. One is you discover new strength in yourself. I think, as Christians, we discover Jesus' strength. The second thing is you discover your real friends. He says suffering's really a filter. Uh, people don't want to be near you when you're struggling, you know what, unless they really care about you. And there are two people you'll never forget when you're in crisis. The people who kicked you when you were down. The people who offered you a hand to lift you up. And then the third thing that hate says that you discover is uh, new priorities. Deeper, more meaningful, more enduring priorities. Uh, after this. And I don't know if Harold chappell knows the Lord or, or, or not. But I got to tell you, he, he, this is what it should look like for us. This is the kind of joy that resists. The kind of peace that withstands all kinds of circumstances. The final quote in one of these articles that I read says this. Harold chappell sitting in a wheelchair stands taller than he ever has. And that can be true for you and for me if I put it into a mathematical equation, I would say friction plus faith equals formation. God's training you. He's using this. He didn't bring it into your life. Be careful with that. He's using this. He's redeeming it to make you a better person. And that's really what all these letters are talking about as you read. James 1 says, whenever you face trials of any kind, not just persecution, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think that's a little riff possibly on Job 23 verse 10. Where Job says, when he has tested me, I shall come out like gold. Job said that. See, and here our writer says, when it's all over, it's unpleasant. But when it's all over, verse 11, there you will find the peaceful fruit of righteousness left behind in your life. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what God wants to give you. We say, just get me out of the I'm going to hit the ejection button get me out of the crisis God said I could do that but you know what there's going to be another crisis in fact there may be a whole chain of crises what good would it do to get you out of this one only to find you in another one what I want to do is use this one to get the crisis out of you and teach you how to live with peace and in relationship with me in the midst of all of life's adversity that's progress I want to love you through this will you let me Well, we talked about endurance and his strength. Now, finally, a new story. And here, I think this is the answer to the question of how. How do we get resilience like this guy, Harold? Like these believers to whom the writer of Hebrews writes. How do we get this? Well, we embrace pain so God can strengthen us. As we let Jesus be the one to write a new story in us. I love the way the King James Version renders verse 2 here. In the King James, Jesus is characterized as the author and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is an author. And this is the good news of the passage. Here's where it really lands, because he says, look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. What you're going to find when you do so, you'll see one who has stood by you. More important than the call to stand by Jesus is to see Jesus. And he's the one who stands by you. He's the one who went to the cross for the joy set before him. A joy he wants to sow in your life. In the difficult soils of adversity. In AD 64, Nero, the emperor of the Roman, the known world, Roman Empire. Tried to rewrite history. Tried to make himself an author. You may have heard about the great fires of Rome. They were in that year, eighty sixty four, burned down 10 of the 14 districts of Rome. Absolutely devastated the city, and it left Nero with a political problem. Because the rumor was that Nero himself had ordered the fire in order to be able to reconstruct Rome for his own glory. And it was just plausible that maybe that's what happened. So Nero came up with an idea to shift blame away from himself and to use a certain population as scapegoats, a group of people he cared little about and knew even less about, Christians. We learn about this from the Roman historian Tacitus, who was born uh, in AD 56. And this is fascinating on so many levels. I just want to take a minute and read to you a paragraph from the Annals, Tacitus' Annals. This is official Roman history. Here's what he says about Nero's attempt to become an author and rewrite the story. To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. It's not that he had a lisp. They didn't know much about Christians and he misspelled it. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is extra-biblical evidence for the crucifixion of Jesus. And, he says, a most mischievous mischievous superstition, that he had risen from the dead, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. He's honest. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Forced. False confessions. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. Because they refused to worship the emperor, of course. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt. To serve as a nightly illumination. When daylight had expired. Wow that's horrifying. But what I want you to notice. Is how different our savior is. Jesus Christ. He's also king like Nero. But he has no need to erase. The unwelcome parts. Of the story. Because Jesus is God. Who took. Our every suffering into himself. On the cross to redeem it to overturn it, to destroy it with his own death and resurrection, and then to return it to us all as an occasion for eternal joy. If we look to Jesus, if we stand by him, we can reframe our suffering as an opportunity to grow as Jesus rewrites a new story in our lives. Everybody's writing a story. Finally, back to Jonathan Haidt. When you suffer... That understanding of your life is shaken. It loses coherence. And what you do is you start to rewrite. So I think it's so appropriate that Jesus is presented to us here as an author. He was writing at the beginning of your story. He'll be the one who writes at the end of your story. And he has written himself into the middle. You reframe your suffering as he rewrites. Well, for me. I'm too much in the middle right now of parental pain and family Uh, Therapy to be able to tell you how this story is going to end. I don't know. I just know it's really hard. But I want to tell you this. I trust Jesus. And I'm giving him this whole thing and I'm allowing him to write each day in my life and in our lives. We're looking to him. We're fixing our eyes upon him. So I have so much hope for what we're going through as hard as it is. And I'm already beginning to see little glimpses of new themes in this grand narrative that are emerging. Places where We're listening a little bit more to each other. We're offering each other more patience. Unexpected forgiveness for past hurts. And even love. Especially when it's not deserved. As I close, I just want to take a minute to wonder aloud with you. If it's worth you thinking about why God has you in church tonight. Why he brought you here tonight to engage with this text and to worship him in this way. Are you in pain? Where is your pain? Are you running from it? Have you discovered the peace that Jesus wants to give you? Some questions you might ask yourself. In the midst of this, are you more inclined to ask, God, take it away? Or, God, how are you rewriting the story of my life right now? What's new in this? God, how are you using this? Are you more inclined to say, God, erase it? Or God, write something new? However you answer these questions, my friends, I know that the Savior is poised over your life in love. And his pencil is out. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we bow bow before you as people who want to affirm that we also are broken but we're okay because we're so beloved you've given us everything and lord we just feel the freedom here to confess tonight that we're wounded we're disoriented we're frightened and anxious and but we're so filled with joy to know that you care about all of that and you're able to use these circumstances to bring out our eternal character To burn away the dross. To forge in us your holiness. To bring forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So Lord we, we pray for the people around the world tonight. That are suffering because of their witness to you. And ask that you give them strength. And then we pray to the person on our right. And the person on our left sitting in this room. And pray that you likewise give them the very same strength. In your grace. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.